One of the sad realities of our day is that there is a massive tendency within Christianity to base doctrine on experience or even to allow experience to overrule truth. It is not uncommon to hear someone say, I don't care what anyone says, I know that such and such is true because I experienced it. While it is certainly true that experience can be a valuable teacher, experience is not the determiner of truth. For example, do you remember what happened when Moses was leading the people out of slavery from Egypt and into the promised land? There was one occasion when God told Moses that he could get water for the people by speaking to a rock. But on that occasion, Moses was so angry that he struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock. Do you remember what happened? Did God judge him on the spot? Strike him dead? Do something like that? Absolutely not. Water came out for the people. If you were just to look at the experience, you could easily assume that everything was right and okay. But such was not the case. That event cost Moses the opportunity to lead the people into the promised land. Experience can be a valuable teacher, but it's important that we don't assume that experience is the determiner of truth or the determiner of what is right and what is wrong. Moses got some good results with his experience of striking the rock instead of speaking to it. He got water for the people. But the good results didn't make the action right. That is a message that needs to be heard in Christianity today. Good results don't make the action right. You see, there are churches, just as an illustration of this point, there are churches that believe it doesn't matter how you do ministry as long as you get results. They believe that you can do things any way you want to do them as long as you get results. Moses got results. Moses got results, but he didn't do things the way he should have done them, and God wasn't pleased. When it comes to ministry, the message is certainly important to God, and the methodology is important to God. In fact, the methodology can sometimes blur the accuracy of the message. For example, if a church says that sin is a terrible thing to God, but that church doesn't do anything about it when the people who are a part of that church are flagrantly involved in sin, what does that do to the message? It basically changes the message. It sends a message. It sends the message that sin is not that big of a deal. We can talk about it. We can say something about it. We just don't need to do anything about it. Because I have been here so many years and watched churches come and go, one of the things I have done through the years is to pay attention to what churches people go to in order to hide when they are in sin. That happens, you know. If a church is trying to shepherd someone who is involved in sin, 
or counsels someone who is involved in sin, it is very common for that person to bolt and go to another church. And what I find very interesting to notice is what church a person like that chooses to go to. Now, I'm not suggesting that every time a person flees one church and goes to another church, that means that the second church even knows about it and condones what has happened. Any church can have a person run to it to avoid responsibility and avoid accountability. However, when a church becomes known for allowing people to flee accountability in their original church, that's a problem. That sends a clear message, a very clear message, regardless of what is preached. So the point is that the message is important to God, certainly, and the methodology is important to God. Getting results and having certain experiences is not the determiner of truth or the determiner of right and wrong. Related to this issue or along the same lines... There are many people within Christianity who base their view of the Holy Spirit on their experiences. They don't go to Scripture to do a thorough study of what the Word of God has to say about the Holy Spirit. Instead, they base their theology of the Holy Spirit on experiences or supposed experiences. As a result, many of the things taught about the Holy Spirit today are atrocious In fact, some of them are blasphemous. And what I find disturbing is that there is very little outcry within Christianity when this kind of thing happens. Now think with me about this. When God the Father is blasphemed, or when God the Son is blasphemed with heretical comments and teachings, there is often an outcry from Christians to oppose such teachings. Books are written to oppose such uh, heretical views of God. Uh, Sermons are preached, etc. And that's the way it should be. However, when the same kind of thing happens in relation to the Holy Spirit, very few Christians say anything. And if you do say anything, you are accused of being narrow or unloving or divisive. How can you criticize someone's experience? That's what is often said to oppose or silence anyone who speaks up to defend a biblical view of the Holy Spirit. It illustrates the point that experience is seen by many as the determiner of truth. In the Word of God, this is not the case. Truth isn't established by experience. It is established by what God has said in Scripture. This fact is set forth in a powerful way in the text we are going to consider this morning. Please turn with me in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1, over near the end of the New Testament. It's almost easier to find the book of Revelation and go backwards a few small letters to 2 Peter chapter 1. In our continuing series through this letter, we come this morning to verses 19 through 21, but I want to begin reading in verse 16. So we get the flow and the context in our minds. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. The Apostle Peter wrote, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such, an, such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. Or, depending on your translation, we have a more sure word than this, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation or origination, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. One of the most commonly stated truths in the Bible is the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth again someday. To reinforce that statement, listen to the following statistics. Prophecy occupies one-fifth of Scripture... And the second coming occupies one-third of that one-fifth. Of the the 333 prophecies concerning Christ, only 109 were fulfilled in His first coming, leaving 224 yet to be fulfilled in His second coming. Of the 46 Old Testament prophets, less than 10 of them speak of events in Christ's first coming, while 36 of them speak of events connected with his second coming. There are a total of 1,527 Old Testament passages referring to the second coming. That's Old Testament. There are 7,959 verses in the New Testament, 330 of which refer directly to the second coming. That is one out of 25 verses in the New Testament refer directly to the second coming. Next to the subject of faith, the subject of the second coming is the most dominant subject in the New Testament. For every time the first coming is mentioned in the Bible, the second coming is mentioned eight times. An eight to one ratio. For every time the atonement is mentioned once, The second coming is mentioned twice, a two-to-one ratio. The Lord refers to his return, the Lord himself refers to his own return 21 times in the pages of Scripture. Men and women are exhorted to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ over 50 times in the New Testament. Those are the statistics. Jesus is coming back to this earth again someday. Yet, there are many people in our world who do not believe that is the case. They believe it is only a religious notion, or a fairy tale, or a fable, or a myth. As a result, it is easy for Christians to feel intimidated about holding to the truth of the second coming and proclaiming that truth. When we hold to and proclaim and trust in the fact that Jesus is coming back someday, we get a variety of responses within society. 
One response is we are ignored. From others, we are marginalized. From others, we are made fun of by many people in society. They accuse us of believing in a pie-in-the-sky religion. They, they accuse us of being escapist in our thinking and believing in a fairy tale. This has gone on since the first century, beloved. And that is what Peter is addressing here in chapter 1 of this letter. He basically says this in the text I just read. Listen, we aren't believing a myth when we say that Jesus is coming back someday in power and glory. We saw his second coming glory with our own eyes on the Mount of Transfiguration. And that is exactly what Peter saw on that occasion. He was given a preview of the glory that Jesus will display in the second coming. So Peter reassures his readers that they aren't following myths, they aren't following fables, they aren't following fairy tales. In the process, he gives two reasons of assurance regarding the certainty of the second coming. Number one, his eyewitness account of the transfiguration, which is mentioned in verses 16 through 18. We looked at those last Lord's Day. And number two, the authority of Scripture, which is the focus of our text in verses 19 through 21. Those are the two pieces of evidence Peter sets forth. But the interesting thing about this passage that we are going to consider is how Peter compares the weight of those two pieces of evidence. Peter mentions his experience of, of the transfiguration and the authority of Scripture as supporting evidence for believing in the second coming, but he gives far more weight to Scripture than to his experience. Let's jump into this passage, and I'll show you what I mean. Notice verse 19. Peter says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed, as a light that shines in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter has just been talking about his experience of seeing the transfiguration, but now he moves on to talk about the reliability of the written word of God. Notice that he refers to the written word of God as the prophetic word. Now, I'm going to get a little technical at this point, but stay with me because this is an important issue to understand. My translation of this verse, the New King James Version says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed. The NIV says, and we have the word of the prophets made more certain, which if that's the correct translation would beg the question, how can the Word of God be more certain. The New American Standard Bible says, and so we have the prophetic word made more sure, again, which begs the question, how can God's word be any more sure than it is? However, the New American Standard Bible italicizes the word made to let us know that it was not in the original Greek, but has been supplied by the translators. So the word made is not in the Greek text. All three of these translations I just mentioned imply that somehow the prophetic word is confirmed by Peter's experience. 
While it is certainly possible that is what Peter is saying, I don't think it is. I believe the ESV has captured Peter's point because it says this, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word. Peter is saying that he had a wonderful experience when he saw the transfiguration. But we have something that is more sure than any experience. We have something more sure than anybody's personal experience. We have the Word of God. The Word of God is more sure than any of our experiences. Our experiences are not always trustworthy. Or maybe a better way to say it would be to say our interpretation of our experiences, our interpretations of our experiences are not always trustworthy. This is illustrated by a little story that was written by John Godfrey Sachs entitled The Blind Men and the Elephant. The poem goes like this. It was six men of Indistan to learning much inclined who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant and happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side at once began to bawl. God bless me, the elephant is very like a wall. The second, feeling of the tusk, cried, Ho, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp, to me tis mighty clear, this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands thus boldly up and spake, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out an eager hand, felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth who chanced to touch the ear said even the blindest man can tell who this resembles most, deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indistan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion exceeding stiff and strong though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. That story illustrates the danger of basing our views entirely on experience. So what Peter is saying here in verse 19 is this, the Word of God is more sure than any of our experiences. It is more sure, it is more certain, it is more complete, more permanent, and more authoritative than the experience of anyone. Therefore, he says here in verse 19, therefore we would do well to heed it. Because it is the Word of God, we ought to pay attention to it, and listen to it, and obey it. We should live our lives by Scripture, Peter says, because it is a light in a dark place, which is exactly what Peter says in the next phrase. Scripture is a light that shines in a dark place, and we should live our lives by it until the day that Jesus comes back. 
This is what is being referred to by the phrases, the day dawns and the morning star rises. Those are both picturesque, uh, illustrative phrases to refer to the second coming. And when that takes place, Peter says, when Jesus comes again, it will not only transform things externally, it will transform believers internally. That is why Peter adds the phrase, in your hearts, here in this verse. The second coming isn't going to happen in our hearts, obviously. It's going to happen literally, physically, bodily. But it is going to burst forth in our hearts. Until that day, and here's Peter's point, until that day, Scripture should be our compass. Scripture should be our guide. Scripture should be our authority. Then, when that day happens... The perfect but limited revelation of the Scriptures will be replaced with the perfect and complete revelation of Jesus Christ at the second coming. Since that is the case, Peter elaborates further on the reason why Scripture is our authority in life and should be our authority in life. He says in verse 20, Knowing this first. In other words, this is very important. You need You need to understand this. You need to be convinced of this first and foremost. That no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Once again, we have an interesting translation issue to discuss. Just about all of our English translations have the word interpretation at the end of this verse. And many of them will have some kind of little marginal note or footnote to give you other possible translations of this Greek word. The word interpretation is a viable translation of this Greek word, but it can also be rendered explanation or origination. What would be the best way to translate this Greek word? Well, the Greek word that Peter uses here is from the Greek word luo, which literally means to loose, to untie, or to let go. So what Peter is talking about here is how the Scripture was loosed or untied or how it came into being. Because of what he says in the next verse, it is obvious that he has in mind the origination of Scripture here in verse 20, not the interpretation of Scripture. He is reminding us of where Scripture came from how we got it, how it came into being. And he says here in verse 20, it did not originate with man. He says you need to know this first. You need, this is of utmost importance. Scripture did not originate with man. It originated with God, the Holy Spirit. And that is why Peter adds the next verse to explain further. He says, for... And you know the basic rule of Bible study. Whenever you see a therefore, wherefore, or for, you need to see what it's there for. Peter is simply elaborating, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's point is clear. Men, let me just say it in a direct statement, Men didn't decide to write the Bible. That's his point. He is saying the men who wrote the Bible did not come up with that idea on their own. It wasn't of their own initiative. 
Men didn't decide to write the Bible. This is what you often hear from unbelievers and skeptics, is it not? They say the Bible is just a collection of the writings of men. It's just the thoughts of men written down. It's like any other book. It's great poetry, great history, but it's just the writings of men. Peter knew that charge would be leveled against the Bible, and even more important than Peter knowing it would be leveled against the Bible, the Holy Spirit knew it would be leveled against Scripture. Therefore, the Holy Spirit guided Peter to write this verse, this section of his letter, to counter that common erroneous assertion. Scripture was not man's idea. It did not originate with men. Moses didn't decide way back in the Old Testament times, I think I'll write, you know, the Bible, the Word of God. Or Isaiah, I think I'll, you know, I think I'll write the Word of God. I, I'll just presumptuously take, presumptuously take on myself the task of writing the Word of God. No, no. Scripture wasn't man's idea. It didn't originate with men. In fact, notice how strong Peter's wording is here. He says, no prophecy of Scripture. No statement of Scripture was ever made by an act of human will. The accurate view of Scripture, the accurate view of the Bible, is to realize it came about when the Holy Spirit prompted and guided the human authors to say exactly what God wanted said. In fact, Back in 1 Peter chapter 1, you may remember that Peter told us that there were times when the prophets didn't even fully understand what they wrote. They wrote what they were guided to write, and then they sort of scratched their heads trying to figure out what person could fulfill all of these various prophecies. And that is why we call Scripture the Word of God. And that is what gives this book its authority. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, Scripture is the very breath of God. That doesn't mean that men wrote the Bible and then God breathed into it after the fact, after they had written it. No, the idea is that God exhaled and the result was the Bible. That's the picture, the word picture. Let me illustrate this. All of us here in this room have had the experience of breathing on a window on a cold winter day or breathing out in the air on, on a cold winter day. When you breathe on a window that is cold, your breath crystallizes on the window pane. You can see your breath. That is the idea of the Greek word that Paul uses in 2 Timothy 3.16 when he says all Scripture is the breath of God. That's the picture. God exhaled, God breathed out, and this was the result. Scripture. And Peter's point here in this verse is that the apostles, or even far back, the Old Testament prophets, any writers of Scripture, his point is that, that people didn't just sit down and to decide to write Scripture of their own accord. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. They were moved along by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They were guided by the Holy Spirit, which is what is meant by the term inspiration when it is used of Scripture. Peter also referred to this very process back in Acts chapter 1. Back up there with me for just a moment. Go back to the fifth book of the New Testament after the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and look at Acts chapter 1. It occurred to me as I was studying this that 
The doctrine of inspiration was something that was obviously very important to Peter and meaningful to Peter. He mentions it in 1 Peter chapter 1, first chapter of his first letter. He mentions it in the text we were just in, first chapter of 2 Peter. And even on an occasion in the book of Acts when he was speaking and he didn't really need to bring it up, he brought it up. That's how important this was to him. Notice what he says in Acts chapter 1. This is, of course, uh, after the ascension of Jesus back into heaven, but before the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. In Acts chapter 1, verse 15, it says this, And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. So there are 120 gathered, and Peter stands up and he says this, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled. Now notice, he could have just said the scripture, but notice how he described scripture, which shows me how, how cognizant Peter was of the doctrine of inspiration. He says this, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Peter's description elongates his sentence unnecessarily. It would have been easier just to say, this, holy, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which was spoken concerning Judas. But it was so important for Peter, in his own heart, his own mind, to describe scripture this way. This scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David. That, beloved, is the process of inspiration. Inspiration was the Holy Spirit of God supernaturally guiding the writers of Holy Scripture to say what God wanted said by using the vocabulary of the human authors. Or if you want a technical definition, a theological definition of inspiration, it is this. Inspiration is that work of the Holy Spirit in guiding human authors to compose and record through their personalities God's selected message without error in the words of the original documents. That is inspiration. And the result is what Paul describes in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is the very breath of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is the result of verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal means the very words are inspired and not just the concepts, not just the ideas. The very words. Plenary means all the words are inspired and not just some of them. Yet, the personalities of the human authors come through because the process was a supernatural work of God using human vessels. The best illustration of this process and product is the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think with me for just a moment about the parallels here. God, the Holy Spirit, to bring about the Lord Jesus here in, in, into into the human race, God the Holy Spirit used a human sinful vessel, namely Mary, to bring into this world the sinless, perfect Son of God. The result was a theanthropic person, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the same way, God the Holy Spirit used human sinful vessels, 
namely the apostles and prophets, and brought into this world the infallible, inerrant Word of God. The result was a theanthropic book, the Bible. And beloved, this doctrine, please hear me, this doctrine, the doctrine of inspiration, is the foundation of the Christian life. That is not an overstatement. It is the foundation of the Christian life. Because if you can't trust the absolute accuracy and authority of the Bible, then you're out on a sea of hopelessness with no paddle. You just pick and choose what you, what you think you can trust. You pick and choose what you think you can believe. You pick and trust what you think is authoritative. The Bible is the very Word of God. Psalm 138 verse 2 says, God magnifies His Word above His name or according to His name. That is how accurate and authoritative this book is. In addition to being accurate, in addition to being authoritative, the Bible is also sufficient. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I've alluded to this verse a couple times, but turn to the right Past Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, then 2nd Timothy, chapter 3. <clears throat> Notice Paul's statement about Scripture. It ties in perfectly with what Peter says about Scripture in 2nd Peter 1, our text. 2nd Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture... Now, we have a variety of translations at this point. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is the very breath of God. All those are, are viable, good translations of this Greek word. It's, it's, by the way, a Greek word that Paul invented himself. We have no record of this Greek word used anywhere else in all of the Greek literature we have of the first century. It's as if Paul invented this word. All Scripture is the very breath of God. One word in Greek. God breathed. And therefore it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Paul says because Scripture is the very breath of God, it is profitable for four specific functions that Paul lists in this verse. Those four specifics are teaching or doctrine, reproof, correction, and training or instruction. The word profitable in this verse means beneficial or useful or valuable. Because Scripture is the breath of God, it is valuable for, number one, teaching. Teaching. Scripture teaches us about the most important issues in all the universe. It teaches us about God, about Christ, about life, about death, about sin, about salvation, about heaven, about hell, and so many other things. It teaches us about money and time and wisdom and problems. Scripture is valuable for teaching. Second, it is valuable for reproof. This word means to refute error. So Scripture is valuable to show us where we are wrong. Where we are wrong in our thinking, wrong in our living. This is extremely important because even though it's uncomfortable to be told we're wrong, and even though we don't, in a sense, don't like to be told we're wrong, it's really the best thing in the world for us. We need to see where we are wrong in our thoughts, in our actions, in our words. Otherwise, we just continue going down the wrong path 
And we end up being enslaved in our wrong. But we need, but we not only need to see where we are wrong, we need to see how to change it. That's the next word in verse 16, the word correction. Scripture is valuable, it is useful, helpful for correction. It not only shows us where we are wrong in our thinking, in our speaking, or our actions, it shows us how to correct the problem, how to change it. And then the final phrase in verse 16 is instruction or training in righteousness. The Word of God not only points out error in our lives and shows us how to correct it, it also instructs us and trains us in how to live righteous lives. The Word of God can instruct us and train us in righteousness in all areas of life. So Paul closes this chapter with verse 17. He says, so that, here's the purpose clause, so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Word of God has the power to complete what God wants accomplished in our lives. When God saves us, His goal is to mature us in Christ and make us like Christ. But as you well know, we have a long way to go when we're first saved. So we begin the process of progressive sanctification, and God uses His Word to accomplish that process in us. Now, He uses other things also, such as trials and life's experiences and other people and His indwelling Holy Spirit. But at the core of the process is the inspired living Word of God. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, says Ephesians 6. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God as a sword to point out things in our lives that need to be addressed and to cut away things that need to be discarded. The Word of God is the Spirit's tool, His sword to make us more like Christ. But not only does he use his word to change and refine our character, he also uses it, this verse says, to equip us to be able to serve him and live for him and minister to other people. That's what the last phrase of this verse is describing. The word of God has the ability to equip us for every good work. Whatever God wants us to do in life, whatever he calls us to, is not beyond our ability when we are equipped with and by the Word of God. Beloved, you don't ever have to fear. You don't ever have to fear that God is going to ask you to do something in life that you can't do. Now, you may not be able to do it on your own, in your own strength or naturally, but you can do it when you are equipped with and by the powerful Word of God. Because Scripture is the very breath of God, verse 16, it has the power to do all these things that are mentioned here in verses 16 and 17. And Peter's point in our text in 2 Peter 1 is that because Scripture is inspired by God, because it originated with God, because it is the Word of God, we can trust what it says about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and about every other subject it addresses. It is authoritative and it is powerful. However, let me add this final point in closing this morning. Scripture is authoritative. Scripture is powerful. But it's not magic. It's not magical. 
What I mean is, you can't put your Bible under your pillow at night and then end up a new person in the morning. doesn't work that way. You can't just read it mindlessly, check that off your list, and then move on with life. You can't just come here and listen to the Bible, close your Bible, and then walk out. It's not magic. It is powerful, but not magical. We need to hear it, embrace it, act on it. That's how life change takes place. If we're not changing and growing, it's not because there's anything insufficient about God's Word. It is the very breath of God. Therefore, as Paul said in Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's what Paul said. That's what Peter said. That is the universal affirmation of the writers of Scripture. We're not writing our own thoughts. This is the very Word of God. So let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let's bow together in closing. As I said a moment ago, the Bible teaches us about the very most important issues in all of life. It teaches us about God, about Christ, about salvation, about heaven, about hell. So if you're here this morning and all of this is new to you, or maybe it's not new to you, but you've never, you know this, but you've never yielded your life to Christ, you need to hear what the Bible teaches. It teaches that there is salvation in no one else. There is only salvation found in Jesus Christ. And those who refuse him will have themselves to blame for eternity in hell. That's what Scripture teaches. And Scripture teaches that you and I need to repent of our sin. We need to humble ourselves before God. We need to personally receive Jesus Christ by faith and his salvation. So if you're here today without a relationship with Christ or a proper, right relationship with Christ, you need to let go of whatever is holding you back and receive Jesus Christ by faith. If you are a child of God, then you need to hear the exhortation, the repeated exhortation found in the Word of God, and that is to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Look at your consumption of God's Word. Is it something you do regularly? Is it, is it an integral part of your life? Do you really let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly? Do you take it in, heed it, listen to it, act on it, so that you're changed to be like Christ? That is what we're called to do as those who name the name of Christ. Father, what a precious and priceless gift is your Word. You would not have had to reveal yourself to us. You would not have had to make sure that the self-revelation you gave was recorded accurately through apostles and prophets and those who wrote Scripture. You would not have had to preserve your word. It certainly has been attacked down through the centuries and uh, so many attempts to destroy it. And yet, you chose to reveal your word. You chose to make sure it was recorded accurately. You chose to give us an inerrant, infallible, authoritative word from you. You have chosen to preserve it. You have chosen for it to be translated into our own language where we can read it without having to know Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. You have given us a priceless treasure. 
So may we, through the pages of your word, get to know you more intimately. And we would pray for anyone here in our midst who doesn't know you at all, who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ personally as Lord and Savior. May your Holy Spirit bring understanding, enlightenment, conviction. And maybe this would be the day that man or woman or young person would come to know Jesus Christ personally as Lord and Savior and then begin to consume your precious and priceless word. Encourage our hearts with your truth this morning. Challenge our hearts. However we need to respond, whatever we need to do in response, may we be eager and willing to do that. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.